Hello and welcome to the Weekend Wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am your co-host for today's very special edition Woo-hoo! of the Weekend Wrap. I'm here, woo! I am joined, as you can hear, by the best-selling author of QAnon and on a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults. If you haven't got your copy yet, what are you doing? It's been out for almost a year. Get on it. It's still a bestseller. Still a bestseller. And of course, Van and I will be at the Melbourne Fringe for the week on Wednesday live this Wednesday. And if you have a copy of QAnon and On and you want me to sign it, bring it on Wednesday night and I'll totally do that. It's going to be at Trades Hall in Melbourne, our spiritual home. And we are super excited about doing it. Absolutely. Uh, so, look, Van, lots to talk about today. Obviously, Insiders was a bit of a corker of an episode uh, in that it was about 40 minutes of... Uh, speculation really regarding the $243 billion of unfunded tax cuts which the Treasury advised the Morrison government not to go ahead with if the budget was not back in surplus. And the budget is not back in surplus because the Liberals managed to blow it out to a trillion dollars. Do you know, I'm so old, I remember when John Howard used to talk about Kim Beasley's black hole of $6 billion, like that was some kind of unpardoned sin, how dare Labor rack up a $6 billion um, budget deficit, and we are now in the reality of a trillion dollar deficit, with the Liberal government having committed the country to tax cuts of a quarter of a trillion dollars. Yeah, look, it's a trillion dollar debt and it's a huge amount. I think, you know, Jim Chalmers spent the week, uh, as was discussed on Insiders, trying to reframe the debate about what was affordable and sensible and, and uh, rational. Sustainable. Sustainable. Affordable. Afford, yeah, reasonable, affordable and sustainable. I think that's the... Yeah, and look, when we've got a trillion dollars worth of debt uh, and a budget deficit in around $40 billion uh, that will just compound the debt problem and rising interest rates, which of course make the debt more expensive. Interest rates go up, you pay more to service your debt. It becomes harder and harder to justify a quarter of a trillion dollars worth of tax cuts. To give out overwhelmingly to the richest percentage in the population. Absolutely. And we've seen this week, you know, obviously the Australian Institute has opposed the tax cuts from the start, as we have as well. But we've seen uh, people from Access Economics, from the Grattan Institute, uh, think tanks that are generally in favour of lower tax, let's be frank, that's their general position, talk about maybe altering the tax cuts, altering the stage three package, removing some of the benefit for the higher income households and really trying to target it. Because of course, Dutton Today Van on Insiders was trying to make out that this was somehow about middle class or middle income households. And the line that I thought was really very telling was where he said, you know, there are people on uh, average wages now, 94,000. The average and the median, by the way, totally different. The, the median is much, much lower. And that means that really the bulk of Australians are earning a lot less than the average wage. It's just the very highest income earners pull Are uh, earning average. so much that they skew the average. Yeah, people like what Andrew Thorburn used to, used to earn. Uh, at, at the NAB <laughs> when he was on, didn't he earn $10 million over in his two last years. two years? Yeah. yeah, Andrew Thorburn, former... I wonder if we'll talk about him later in the chat. <laughs> Maybe later on. But Dutton was trying to say that people on the average wage of, say, 90 some thousand dollars you know, might 
might want to be on 180 in a few years' time. Yeah, they might want to be. And I mean, I'd want to be. I'd love to be on 180. And and they should they should get the tax cut when they get there. He used it was very revealing. He said, yeah, you know, there are people who believe that they'll be on that kind of money because they've worked hard and. And it was just like, oh, this is the thing about conservative ideology, isn't it? It's not actually about what is real and what's happening. It's about these fantasies of of the future and how things should be. Yeah. I've worked hard. I've done this. I spent time away from my family. I sacrificed. I didn't go to the pub on Friday night. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I, I lived an extremely boring conservative life about the accumulation of wealth at the expense of anything to do with character development. And I should be earning $180,000 a year, you know, and this sense of entitlement and and fantasy you know like Mm. it's it reminds me of that great scene if you've never seen a documentary called outfoxed you should which is about um news corp in america and it there's this segment about the number of times that uh fox broadcasts what you should do if you win the lottery yeah and financial advice if you win the lottery like all these fox viewers who are convinced at some point their numbers just must come up and it's that kind of approach to policy making. We're going to we're going to keep these stage three tax cuts for these people who whose fantasies of future wealth are important to them. And look, it is an absolute fantasy. The reality is, wages in Australia have been going backwards. Uh, people's uh, real take home pay has been cut uh, over the last ten years, and quite frankly. Most people will never earn $180,000 in a single financial year. That's just not likely to happen. Now, we we read about celebrities and we read about you know politicians and what they earn and, and you see CEOs and what they earn and people think, oh, eventually it's going to happen to me. And it just doesn't work that way. And I just want to put this in context in Australia as well. Like, I'm really lucky I have a best-selling book and I do plays and I have my column and the rest of it and I don't earn anywhere near <laughs> that kind of money. I will not qualify for a stage three tax cut. And yet, you know, you would think with the kind of apparatus of D-list celebrity that I that I surround myself with, that that might be the case. I promise everybody, I'm still shopping at the mid-range brand stores. Yeah, look, and Dutton... Dutton is desperate to paint himself as the defender of middle-class Australia. Aspiration. He used aspiration. He said the word aspiration today. And and it's fine to have aspiration, and, and that's a good thing. But aspiration has to be tinged with reality. And, and this is why we so often talk about the importance of joining your union. If you're aspirational in this country and you want better wages, better working conditions, you want a pathway to improved living standards, it's not good enough to just believe that it will happen. Some of the hardest working people I've ever met work in aged care, they work in early childhood education, they work in hospitality. Their wages are not going up just because they work hard. They'll go up because they are unionized. So, you know, because they will win pay rises. And for Peter Dutton to kind of pretend that simply being aspirational and believing that you deserve a pay rise, it, it will somehow magically make it happen, flies in the face of the decade in which he was a minister in government mm-hmm. and deliberate policy settings drove down wages. So, you know, if you want if you want to get to $180,000 a year, the first day, step is 
join a union so you get paid properly in the job you're in now and can actually facilitate your aspirations for further training or further pay rises or further uh, further development. That's what you need to do. So go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, because fundamentally Peter Dutton and his aspiration for your beliefs is not going to deliver. Well, I mean, you and I talk about a lot, you know, what is wealth and what is a, like, you know, what makes for a comfortable life. And this is what's really interesting about what the this tax debate is revealing. So obviously I'm going through a lot with the care of my mum at the moment. My mum is in hospital at the moment. It is an enormously stressful time. And the things that make a difference, the things that actually enhance quality of life are quality hospitals and round the clock care and the access to support services. And for other families, it's childcare and early childhood education and being able to send their kids to a quality state school so their kids will get good education, good skills, good training to prepare them for life. It's about educational opportunities. You know, it's about having a health system that is that is quality. When you go into hospital, you will get care. There will be a doctor for you. All of these things. Having uh, the resourcing of, of urban planning and regional planning and rural planning and environmental planning, that means that we don't live in an environmental hellhole and that we can cope with the environmental challenges to come. Like these are the thi- these are the sources of national wealth. They improve the lives of all individuals in Australian society, but they're, they're only possible collectively. Mm. We collect taxation so we can build infrastructure that is beyond us as individuals to facilitate. And I thought it was really telling that Dutton's interview on Insiders and Spears, I thought, actually did a pretty good interview. I love Spears. Full declaration. I think he's one of the best political interviewers this country has ever produced. I think so. I think I, I agree. He's a very good interviewer. I think sometimes he can be a bit naive, but I think he was very good this time. Uh, and and look, what was telling about it for me was that Dutton fundamentally is still offering up the same fare that the Morrison government offered up. Uh, previously, that is fantasies of improbable future wealth. Yeah, fantasies of improbable future wealth, culture wars, uh, and fear. So we had the we had the tax discussion, uh, which, by the way, overwhelmingly people people get that the economy is very different now to what it was in 2019. We've had a pandemic. We've had the the inflationary situation has flipped from record low interest rates to rising interest rates and higher inflation. I mean, the economy could not be in a different state, in a more different state now than, than it was back then. Anyway, fantasies of improbable wealth. Then, of course, we had the culture war issue around Andrew Thorburn. Uh, and even his own Liberal Vice President, Tina McQueen, oh who was celebrating the the demise of moderate Liberals, you know, the, de- the demise of moderate Liberals, which has placed the Liberal Party van, as you and I discussed the day after the election and was revisited again in The Guardian this week, has placed the Liberals on the precipice of the kind of electoral uh, and identity annihilation that the nationalists suffered after their near decade. And the, and the UAP. I wrote yeah. about this for The Guardian in the week after the election about how the real 
threat to the Liberals represented by the Teals was that in in a country with universal enfranchisement, which some people call compulsory voting, the centre right has a different shape in Australia. There are more. There is a huge electorate of people who might be economically conservative, but who are socially progressive. And whenever the equivalent of the Liberal Party loses those people, their party collapses and they stay out of government. It happened with the Nationalists, and then they reformed into the UAP, the United Australia Party, the first version, and then they collapsed and they became the Liberal Party. And Robert Menzies, who, you know, the great mm. icon of centre-right politics in Australia, whose government lasted a million billion years, he was very explicit when somebody said, why aren't you called the Conservative Party? He was like, because Conservatives will vote for us anyway. This is a Liberal Party with Liberal values. That's where we're staking our ideological claim. And that, when a Liberal Party represents liberal values, that's a huge electoral challenge to Labor parties to beat mm. because people make all kinds, because people who live in fantasies of future and probable wealth um, like to think of themselves as socially switched on and progressive, um, but also that they're, you know, economically conservative because they are like responsible and whatever. And of course, the current iteration of the Liberal Party is just repeating the cyclic mistake of their predecessors, letting their right dominate. I mean, Tina McQueen's, oh, ha ha. You know, cry more, liberals. And it's like, you're the Liberal Party, love. Well, you know, Nick Minchin, who is a conservative, was a conservative member of the Howard government. Tried to destroy universal enfranchisement in his last term of government, I'd yeah. like to point out, was trying to get rid of compulsory voting. Is, is fundamentally a con- one of the most conservative people to ever hold a ministry addressed the CPAC conference, which is a conservative political action committee conference, where Tina McQueen made these statements about the um, the demise of moderates in the Liberal Party. Uh, and Nick Minchin said, the Liberal Party doesn't actually need much change. We need to refocus ourselves on on connecting with voters, and was booed. And, and he was booed. Not only was he booed, he then went, well, I don't accept your criticism, and he was booed more. And he said, I'm not going to take this from the likes of you lot. <laughs> he was very forthright in it. This is a person who, in a column for The Guardian, one of my earliest, earliest columns, I actually referred to as Satan, and it got through legal. It was legally approved for me to publish a claim that Nick Minchin was Satan. But Dutton is unable to bridge this divide because he's not a Menzies or a Fraser or even a Howard. You know, he he, he hasn't addressed this issue of this fringe He's not even a Gorton. (laughs) No, no. And he hasn't addressed the fringe element. Uh, Spears asked, well, has Tina McQueen apologised? He ignored that question, just ignored it entirely. Uh, We're seeing in the Victorian Liberal Party this huge division, their inability to campaign for the state election. The state election in Victoria is less than 50 days away and the Liberals still, I don't think, have all their candidates. They're, they're totally divided. They're, the religious extremists have staked a claim within the party. Uh, you're seeing it play out all over the country. Uh, and Dutton, Dutton's intervention in the Andrew Thorburn saga, which we discussed um, uh sort of, you know, last week. But his intervention now to say, well, Andrew Thorburn shouldn't have been sacked, people shouldn't be discriminated against based on what they believe. Well, Spears put it to him and said, well, what about teachers in religious... Gay teachers at religious schools. And he just sort of went, oh, well, you know, you make a decision about where you go to work. Well, hang on a minute, mate. You're trying to have it bob both ways, which is exactly what Morrison tried to do. It's exactly the same positioning 
And, you know, Andrew Thorburn, a whole bunch of reasons he shouldn't have been appointed. That, that the fact that he appointed himself, I think, is probably well absolute clangor. He put himself forward. He was supposed to be running an independent review, including looking at the CEO position for Essendon Football Club. He interviewed other candidates. He was on the panel, apparently, interviewing other candidates, and then, in the end, put himself forward. I mean, this is a man who the Royal Commissioner said he had no confidence that what he said publicly as CEO of NAB and what he did within the business. This is during the Banking Royal Commission when NAB was found to have been charging fees for no service, including to dead people. Yeah. I mean, again, Andrew Thorburn's chief of staff was found guilty of fraud. Now, there's no accusations that he was involved in that in any way and he denies any knowledge and there's no evidence to suggest otherwise. But there's no question that as the CEO, he has a overall leadership responsibility for the behaviour and the actions of his staff, particularly his senior staff, uh, who, by the way, the Royal Commissioner also said, I find it hard to believe that the bank has learned any lessons when on the same day that their CEO is answering questions at this Royal Commission, senior managers are sending emails to people reminding them that they have to sign up five mortgages before Christmas. You know, this is this is a cultural issue about corporate culture, not a cultural issue about religion and people's beliefs. But Dutton refuses to touch that because that might impact people's unreasonably held belief about their future financial prosperity. You know, he's continuing to play the same cards Morrison did. Uh, even to the point where he continued to play the same card he played when he was first Home Affairs Minister and Defence Minister in regards to Australian citizens, women and children who are currently overseas because they were taken there, sometimes somewhat unwillingly when they were children themselves, by people who joined ISIS and they want to repatriate. These are women and children who are starving. Some have died. They've been in refugee camps. They spoke briefly on Insiders about a 17-year-old kid who was an Australian citizen who was taken into custody when he reached a certain age and died in a Syrian prison. You know, Dutton's response to this is that we have to be very careful bringing these people back. Uh, you know, and of course, nobody says we should. You know, watch uh, watch infants all the time. Uh, but some of these, you know, children strap vests to themselves, and you know, that was a quote. Some of these children strap vests to themselves. Peter Dutton is fear mongering yeah. about women and children, and these are a lot of them are toddlers. Like, there's one woman who was forced into a marriage with an ISIS fighter um, at 15, has four children and is only 19. She's 22 now. She had four before she was 19. Four before she, sorry, four before she was 19. Now she's 22. These are Australian citizens. They are our children. And and Peter Dutton was, well, I've got to keep Australian toddlers safe. And it's like they are Australian toddlers. Yeah, it is remarkable his lack of reflection on what the Liberal Party is supposed to be about, the the reasons why the Liberals lost government. I, I think, too, Labor needs to look at this and go, well, as much as there's all this talk about a promise on tax, right, how many people voted for Labor because of stage two tax cuts and how many voted for Labor despite stage two tax cuts? Mm. Because I actually think there's more people who voted for Labor despite the stage two tax cuts. I know certainly 
that's like I think the case for us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, so this idea that somehow or another it's a core promise or a you know something the constituency of people who vote Labor will abandon Labor for. Uh, abandoning <laughs> is ridiculous. Oh, I think it is completely ridiculous. I mean, th- I, I was tweeting this during Insiders today. People vote for governments to act in the best, nat- the best of the national interest, right? And the national interest has changed. It's not 2019 anymore. We are in a completely different reality to then. Yeah. And you want a government that puts the the interests of the entire community first and the the government the new labor government are destroying potholes and landmines everywhere like in all of these different policy areas yeah. i mean you have the situation where this massive skill shortage is overcoming this country because mm. the liberals just didn't bother investing in skills and training you could just import labor from you know wherever kind of, yeah where, wherever country you really wanted just do a trade deal ship them in ship them out haha they won't join unions that kind of thing and we know that there is a huge problem with the robustness of our economy. We know that we are nine years behind in the climate tech fight, yeah. you know, that we are starting from behind in terms of developing competitive technologies that we could, as a modern industrialised nation with all these universities, all this research, stable political environment, we should be in a position to look at fuel transitions and energy transitions and go, we've got the tech to solve that problem. Talking talking about the potholes and landmines left by a decade of, of liberal mismanagement and, and New South Wales, you know, 12 years of uh, liberal state government as well. I think, it, you know, the gig economy is one of those areas where we've had a decade of massive expansion of the gig economy. You know, it started with Uber and now it's in aged care, it's in the NDIS, it's in just about every part of the economy. And, and this... Over the last couple of days, we've seen the New South Wales Labor opposition make commitments about what it will do if it wins the state election in March to, to really level the playing field. And, I, and, and I, I think the gig economy is a really good example where Morrison just went, hands off, I'm just going to let business do whatever. Let it rip. Let it rip. It was a real let it rip, you know, to use the kind of pandemic parlance. It was a let it rip strategy. Uh, and what's happened is you've got, this huge dichotomy between businesses who've been doing the right thing, uh, employing people, giving them, you know, leave, giving them proper... Sick days, uh, super, all the things that... Paying the award, doing the right thing. and Generations of unionists fought for, yeah. Yeah, and those that are using sham contracting to undermine... uh, Undermine good, solid wages and proper jobs. And, And this is come out in the last few days here in New South Wales, which is where we are today, um, that what Labor will do is say, well, it doesn't matter how you engage someone, you will have to pay minimum wages, you will have to pay payroll tax, you will have to contribute towards workers' compensation schemes, and we will set up a... Uh, a leave scheme, a portable leave scheme that means that you pay into it for your workers so they can access leave when they need it, whichever platform or gig economy um, outfit they're working for, they can have paid leave. Now, this is... Transformational. Absolutely transformational. And I think it's really telling. Mark Morey, who's the Secretary of Unions New South Wales, said this is good for workers 
and it levels the playing field for business. And, and you know, I saw some quotes from the ASU talking about how good it will be for workers to have access to the portable leave. And I've seen quotes from higher up and the CEO, which is an NDIS registered uh, provider that's a platform that employs people saying, yes, we absolutely think there should be a level playing field and we pay people properly and others should do so too. Like, that's... That is good, solid labour policy. Mm. The only people who oppose those sorts of reforms, in my view... Are people who would pay you nothing if they thought they could get away with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And we've seen, you know, that even when people like Menulog have said to people like the TWU, the Transport Workers Union, we want to try and come up with a solution where we can pay people properly, they get undercut. If, if, if you can... If you can pay people less and you're a heartless capitalist who's happy to pay people nothing, then you will undercut your competition. And Until you destroy them, at which point you put your prices up again. Exactly right. And this is also playing out at a federal level as well, Van, with the conversation about changing our workplace laws, bringing in multi-employer bargaining. The situation we have now, we've seen time and time again, employers who were doing the right thing in the past, facing competitive pressure from new entrants or other organisations that won't do the right thing, that won't bargain with their workers, that won't pay them as employees, that do outsource them, that do sham contract them, that do use labour hire to undercut the salaries. And people who employ go, "I, I can't negotiate with you in good faith because I'm not competing on a level playing field in good faith. You know, that's the kind of economic reality that we're dealing with when it comes to the gig economy and a decade of mismanagement at a Commonwealth level and in New South Wales with the with the state laws as well. Yeah, I think it's a really good sign uh, in terms of the platform that New South Wales Labor is putting together mm. is really solid because Minns has also come out against privatisation and they want to legislate against future privatisations as well, which is fantastic. And it really is making up that ground that was lost to the neoliberal experiment. Yeah. I mean, we've had 40 years in this country and all political parties invested in it. It was all, all of them with market solutions and, you know, like, you know, efficiencies and just this nonsense. And, of course, I think Australia owns a great debt of gratitude to Liz Truss, the new Tory Prime Minister of Britain, who decided within 10 days of becoming Prime Minister to um, move forward with a campaign of massive tax cuts structured similarly to the stage three tax cuts here and promptly tanked the British economy. Um, People have lost their homes because markets were so destabilised by the great free market Prime Minister Liz Truss. Like by acting on the logic that every greedy capitalist of the past 40 years has insisted is the road to wealth. Well, the road to increased wealth for the already wealthy few, not those indulging fantasies of improbable future wealth. like we have seen the evidence that these economics are bunkum. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in terms of looking at looking at what is good for all of us, what makes us stable, what makes us prosperous, what gives us opportunity to develop, to lead good lives, it is investment in infrastructure, it is future planning around skills, training, opportunity, strong internal markets, and that means strong small businesses, enterprises that are governed fairly, workers that are paid properly, 
all of those things are actually, that's prosperity and that's realisable prosperity, not improbable future fantasies, fantasies of improbable future wealth. And, I mean, and this is this gets us back full circle to um, what was raised on Insiders this morning was that Labor do have another year to find political space around the stage three tax cuts because they don't kick in for another year. Um, there is an uh, there are huge presses on the budget to solve immediate problems that mm. require spending. That it much better to spend money on skills and training than on well, giving rich people nine thousand extra bucks. Well, on the NDIS on our hospital system, which has had two years of pandemic uh, to deal with, more than two years of pandemic to deal with, there are there are huge huge, huge pressures in the budget just on the basics. Uh, you know, Medicare needs some support after a decade on on basically, you know, withering on the vine. Yeah, it's been a it's been a tough decade for so many of the key parts of Australia's social infrastructure, what used to be called the social wage. Uh, and, and now we need to invest in those things and that will take money. And Jack Chalmers has, I think, been honest about that. And I think it is good that New South Wales state labour is, you know, making commitments around the gig economy because it is about, it's not just about transport and food delivery, although that's a big part of it. No, it's, it's about services. It's about the NDIS. But it's, it's about also, aged care. And, but it could be about anything. I mean, I've brought this up on the show before, a speech that Nick McKim, who is a Green senator made, his yeah. maiden speech, where he was praising uh, Uberisation, the economy, and pledging that the Greens would support its extension to childcare and to labour hire. And it's it's like that that Uber model of rank exploitation. Once it gets baked in, and you can see it in communities in the United States yeah. where it has baked in structuralized poverty, that people cannot get out of their the productive relations. They're stuck in a loop. They're totally stuck in a loop. And it's interesting because Queensland uh, Labor government. Oh, I get government, so angry about this. Well, because it is. It's infuriating. It undermines centuries of of struggle and achievement by working people, not just in this country, but around the world. And that's why it's important that that Labor governments in Queensland, Labor governments in Victoria are also looking at the gig economy and its impacts and how we regulate it properly. Um, Because it shouldn't shouldn't matter how you are engaged. I think this is the challenge for for the Albanese Commonwealth government uh, is that when they rewrite the laws... Uh, you know, the definitions of employee and contractor and all the rest of it have been allowed to... uh, Become slippery. Yeah, they have become slippery. That's a really good term for it. Uh, And it has to be solidified. It has to be solidified that if you work, you have rights. And those are workers' rights. Regardless of whether you're an employee or a contractor or, you know, a subcontractor or labor, whatever the the label the boss wants to pin on you, if you work, you have workers' rights. And those rights should not be able to be undermined by changing the label that the boss sticks on you every day. That's a pretty simple thing. 
Ben, you talked uh, about, you know, the road to dealing with these issues, the budgets ahead, there's there's lots of water to go under the bridge still to come. Um, and I, and I want to use... Is that the, a segue? I want to use Because I was going to use a segue. I, I was going to talk about, if you want to talk about the political implications of infrastructure, <laughs> that's where I was heading. Do you, can you guess what Ben and I are going to talk about? We're going to talk about the bridge. The ben, bridge is on fire. The, the bridge, the, the bridge, bridge, the bridge is on fire. The, anyway, so yes, it's been a it's been a big week in the uh, Russo-Ukraine war. Yeah, because the Putin's a, war. Putin's war. A bridge has blown up, and it's not just any bridge. It's Putin's bridge. It's Putin's bridge. So in 2014, Putin has had his eyes on invading Ukraine for a while. Has been seizing territory, annexed the Crimea, which is the southern yeah. peninsula tip, which is obviously near, <laughs> what a coincidence, heaps of oil being. Yeah, that's Heaps right. and heaps of oil. Part of Ukraine voted to join Ukraine yeah. uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, very much a Ukrainian part of the world. Anyway, Putin four years ago opened a bridge, a land bridge from Russia to Crimea to solidify after having taken over and militarily yeah. occupied Crimea from 2014. And this bridge was built at a cost of $4 billion. It was built by a Putin crony who was an old friend from the neighbourhood in St. Petersburg he used to do judo with, who's now obviously a billionaire because yeah, yeah. of government favour. Um, Putin drove the very first truck across this bridge and th- th- it even had a mascot cat. Right. Yes, and they made a propaganda movie about it. It was like The Bridge and Me, and it was like a rom-com about this bridge. okay. Yeah, and it's quite symbolic because the Wehrmacht, the German army under Hitler, tried to build this bridge and couldn't do it, and it's always been this project that no one could do. Well, the bridge got built, and it symbolises the Russian annexation of Crimea and has always been portrayed in that way. Well, what do you know? Yesterday, uh, it appears from what people understand that a truck laden with explosives detonated on the bridge next to a train that had five carriages full of fuel. This is what I have read. Obviously, we're still finding out what's going on. Russians are not necessarily forthcoming. And we're not an intelligence agency. And we're not an intelligence agency. But there's a lot of footage of this massive explosion taking out three sections of the bridge. And this is a huge humiliation for Putin Mm. because this is his baby, his project, his symbol. And a lot of the commentary is saying that this is this is the the sign that the that Russia have lost this war. I've just read some commentary, and like I said, these details yeah. could change. That suggests that it was actually a suicide bomber supporting oh, right. Ukraine who blew up the truck on the bridge, and that if you're at the point where what seems to be happening, the the Ukrainian resistance to the war is actually more and more entrenched and all of these horrific discoveries that are being made of torture rooms and burial sites and all the disgusting things the Russians have been doing in Ukraine, documented independent observances, this is not arguable stuff about the cost of that occupation, that the Ukrainians are essentially willing to fight to their, you know, to the last bag of rocks uh, in order to drive the Russians out of that country. Meanwhile, that you've had this mass mobilisation effort where untrained 
soldiers are being deployed by Russia to the front lines. It, you've had 700,000 people leave Russia yeah. since the, the, there were a couple of guys rode a boat to Alaska, like in order to claim asylum in America to get away from the draft. Uh, they don't have, they're running out of missiles. All of these, you know, horrendous stories about the Russian army uh, are, are coming out about, they don't even have socks. They're wrapping their feet. They're using yeah. foot wraps, yeah. which is what people use, by the way, before socks were invented, which is not, I mean, not a great sign. No, it shows for a the lack Russians. of industrial capacity. That's uh, yeah, sure. and the Finns were trolling the Russians after this came out. The Finns have been knitting socks for Ukrainians and took all these photos of themselves with these beautiful fini- handmade Finnish socks sending sending them to Ukraine, big smiling. That's a bit of pan-European solidarity, always lovely to see. But the, the bridge is a big issue. And, of course, given the nuclear sabre-rattling of Putin talking about, you know, the possibility of a nuclear strike and, you know, yeah. his various apparatchiks who have been ramping up this rhetoric, it, it, the bridge is quite a potent symbol because it really does does signify that Putin is the symbols of Putinism have been destroyed and by these Ukrainians who have been described by the Russian regime in subhuman terms. If you are sustaining losses from people you have referred to as subhuman, I mean, what does that say about you? It says your war is unwinnable. Yeah, it does. And Van, I notice uh, that there's been some discussion that. Uh, some elite Russian units may have actually gone into Moscow in the last few hours, in the last day or so, and that there's some some thought that perhaps the Putin era may come to an end in the next seven days. Well, it's very interesting. All kinds of weird things are going on. So nationalist extremists have been parading on the streets of Moscow dressed up as nuclear weapons begging to start a nuclear war. I mean, that's I mean, that's not a great sign. That's very weird. That's very, very weird. And somebody, an American made the point that the missile that they were dressed up as looked like a big crayon and that given the way the Russians are going, they'd probably have more luck with a crayon. Uh, also, there is a lot of supposition that the Russian nuclear nuclear arsenals haven't been properly maintained yeah. and there would be a greater risk to Russia blowing itself up if they tried to fire a missile than anything else. But yes, there have been changes in personnel. Um, you have the leader, the leader, the leader of Chechnya, Radian Katerov. Yeah. His name I am probably pronouncing. I don't have my notes in front of me. Who has sort of distinguished himself with his brutality on the on the battlefield in in Ukraine and sort of his role in Putin's circle has become more influential and he's been yeah. rewarded with a generalship. Um, he has been calling out other military leaders. There's a blame game going on with the leadership. They've just appointed a guy who was notorious in 1991 for shooting protesters personally murdering protesters who's the head of like Russian aerospace has just been made the commander in chief of the whole special operation. He's also one of the guys who was deploying appalling tactics in Syria. It's all getting very messy. Yeah. It sounds like there's a long way to go and the bridge, I mean, the bridge is a powerful symbol and potentially, as you say, because it was used for resupply as well, potentially making Russia's uh, precarious position, even more precarious and we will wait and see what happens over the next few days. Yeah. That's all for the Weekend Wrap today. Uh, we will be back with The Week on Wednesday live. Oh, my God, I can't believe we're actually doing it. And, guys, seriously, there are only a few tickets left. 
if you were thinking of coming on Wednesday, book your ticket now because we would be heartbroken if people were turned away on the night. So book. Absolutely. Guarantee you can make it. Bring your copies of QAnon and on if you want me to sign them. We'll be hanging around afterwards. It'll be such a lovely night at Trades Hall. And it's staggered pricing, meaning you there's a $15 ticket, a $30 ticket, a $50 ticket. If you can only afford a $15 ticket, that's fine. Nobody is going to yep. question you on the door no. about your earning capacity. It is really discretionary and similarly if you're from some kind of cashed up collective and can pay $50 a ticket Ben and I are certainly going to encourage you to do so and look if you happen to be a liberal voter who's uh, you know found themselves lost and listening to our podcast uh, because you have uh, aspirational fantasies of improbable future wealth then certainly pay $50 (laughs) come and see us live because you're going to make it back right that's right that's right that's right Improbable future wealth will flow to you. Darling, I'll see you in four minutes' time. Oh, my God, we're (laughs) in the same room. All right, that's all for today. We love you all. See you Wednesday. Until Wednesday, be kind to yourself and to each other.